Safeway makes it easy to save at the pump with your club card because you can use up to 20 cents per gallon in Safeway gas rewards at participating Chevron and Texaco stations. Get more mileage out of your grocery budget, up to 20 cents per gallon. When you shop more at Safeway, you save more at Chevron and Texaco. Maximum reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Cannot be combined with any other Safeway gas reward offer. Restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at Safeway.com or in-store. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to B-Ball Breakdown. If you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget the entire podcast will be available on our website, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you want to listen to audio. Otherwise, enjoy the rest of our YouTube thing because I have, I'm pleased to have Doug Eberhardt with us, an aspiring NBA coach who's also been embedded in two different NBA coaching staffs, primarily with Mike D'Antoni in New York. So Doug, how's your coaching these days? Nick, I, I'm sitting here waiting for my uh, free agent contract. Hasn't <laughs> rolled around as of yet. So I, I haven't been part of the free agent frenzy, unfortunately. Oh, you're next. The way it's been going the last couple of days has been pretty insane. Uh, hey, does anything actually catch your eye about what's been happening with the signings uh, that, that make sense or don't make sense to you? Uh, Personnel-wise, you know, there's a couple of things. But I guess whether you're just a fan, a coach, a media member, the thing that obviously sticks out is the amazing sums of money that are at play. And yet, when you compare it to how the salary cap is going to increase over the next couple of years, we're talking about guys, uh, mid-level players at $10 million a year that are going to end up being value contracts. So just the uh, both the irony and the humor of that always uh, always makes me laugh a little bit. Absolutely. And I, I have to re-gauge my sense of value as well because of that, because somebody like Paul Millsap, you know, I guess might be worth $20 million a year now because of that salary cap moving up. It'll be less of a percentage of the total. Um, so it's a wild, wild west. And in case you guys are wondering, you might have heard a little bit of a twinge of, uh, of an accident there with Coach Doug. Uh, I guess, could we call you a hoser? An accent? See, this is where I'm always amazed. Canadians don't really have accents. Nice, flat, but uh, no, I, I think hosers normally, uh, that, that applies to some of my Central and Eastern Canadian brethren who wear the two, the, the Doug and Bob McKenzie stereotype, as it were. Uh, out, in, out in Vancouver here, we, we like to think of ourselves as a, uh, a little more cosmopolitan than a hoser, so a Canuck Yes, a hoser, I don't think so. Okay, good. Well, unfortunately, we're dating, I think, both of ourselves because I guarantee you nobody's going to know what we're talking about with Bob and Doug McKenzie. I, I know every 20-year-old out there is going to uh, rush to their computer to find out all about SCTV. Right. Well, you know what? I'll make it easy for them. You can click on the link right above here. I'll put on the screen for you, and you can find plenty of it on YouTube, I'm sure. So. Well, let's talk a little bit about the beginning because I know a lot of coaches come to me and ask me how do they how they got started, and certainly even being touched uh, or being part of an NBA staff or being around them and learning that way probably seems so far fetched to a lot of coaches. Uh, where did you start your coaching career? I, it's actually funny because I've been involved in, in basketball my whole life, as I would imagine a great many of the, the viewers are, and uh, I, I played intercollegiately at the University of British Columbia, and I, I played at Mount Royal College in Calgary, some semi-pro, etc. cetera, um, worked basketball camps, all the things that you would traditionally do, uh, you know, through your teens and 20s and stuff like that. But I, I never actually got into coaching at that time. 
Um, you know, I, I kind of was in the, the marketing and communications area. I worked the corporate job, as it were. And, and my brother, Paul, who's younger than I, he, he became the coach, BC Provincial High School Championship coach, Canadian College Championship coach. He's kind of a coaching legend up in these parts. And I got a very late start in coaching. You know, it, it was through after years of working the corporate job and and it's funny, my, my grandmother actually said to me, you know, why aren't you working in basketball? And I pondered the question and, and said, you know, that that's an unbelievable question. And so it's just kind of over the last 10 years that I've truly tried to uh, be, become a coach and coach at the NBA level. And um, I coached high school varsity here in Vancouver, a couple of different schools as well. But it, it's just been over the, the last 10 years that I've really kind of uh, try to get my foot in the door with the NBA. And to answer the original question, I, I ended up meeting Mike D'Antoni through uh, Steve Nash, uh, obviously local legend up here in British Columbia. My, my brother had had an opportunity to coach Steve in high school in what would be the equivalent of the AAU program up here in BC. And so when Mike was coaching in Phoenix, I uh, met him, got to know him a little bit, and kind of put a proposal to him that I would really like to uh, try and take this a step further, learn the NBA game, learn his system especially. And uh, so we, we kind of became friends based on that, and uh, I got an opportunity once he left Phoenix and went to coach the New York Knicks. At that time, I went and took part in their training camp, and then began coaching at summer league and that was the summer of 2009 with the Knicks so that was kind of my first foot in the door experience with an NBA franchise at that time. Wow well let's talk a little bit about Mike D'Antoni's offense because obviously we see so many pieces of it all over the place and his fingerprint across the entire NBA. Um, you know what was your first reaction when you saw it? Because it, it it definitely feels like it was different than what we had been seeing up until that you know that era of I guess what 2004 before he took over for Phoenix. So what was yeah. your impression when you first got to see it in practice and how they were teaching it? I I was mesmerized by it, and mainly because as you said, the NBA at that time 2004 or five uh, still very traditional in terms of other than the Lakers obviously running the triangle, but most NBA teams had a variation of the same sets that they would run uh, based around kind of previous NBA concepts of matchups and isolation and things like that, whereas Mike D'Antoni had taken such great advantage of the change in the defensive rules in the NBA, whether it was uh, a few years earlier with zone being allowed uh, and then uh, at that time with the hand-checking rules being changed and the, the Phoenix offense was such a departure from everything else going on in the NBA at that time. Uh, and a as a player, uh, I was a point guard, I was very drawn to uh, fast break transition basketball. And uh, that, that was the, the thing, the biggest thing though, and it amazed me, uh, as someone that had a little coaching experience, but not a great deal, was most coaches are total control freaks whether it's football, basketball, hockey, whatever. They want to try and regulate, control the, down to the smallest minutia of what they're doing. But with, for a lack of better term, obviously seven seconds or less with the offense that Jack McCallum named, 
the coach had to give up control. He had to, uh, you had to do your work in practice in terms of, uh, it's not just roll out the balls and run. It's very structured in terms of where people need to go and how they react to what the defense is doing. And uh, to, to play that kind of basketball, at least game-wise, a coach had to give up control. So that was one of the things that struck me right away was, uh, I remember I asked Mike, you know, how many actual sets do you call in a game? And he'd say, you know, in terms of getting up and saying, here's what we run, other than coming out of timeouts, obviously. But, you know, in the free flow of the game, I maybe call five or six mm -hmm. sets. Everything else is based on what we put in in practice, um, what Steve Nash is reading out there. Obviously, that partnership had a lot to do with the success of the offense. But as we've seen, even with very poor teams in New York, where they were clearing out guys for salary space to, to make bids for free agents and things like that. Uh, you had guys come in, you know, whether it was, for instance, Raymond Felton came in and, and did an unbelievable job teaming with Amari Stottlemyre for the first part of a season running that system. And, uh, you know, the coach giving up control, as it were, over the game, managing of the game, for the most part, uh, that always struck me as being unbelievably brave and <laughs> trusting in what you are doing offensively. I agree. I mean, I've certainly seen firsthand that kind of control. I, I've witnessed a Ben Howland practice or two, and uh, you certainly see a good example of what that means, where the assistants don't do anything. He runs, he he does everything, and then in the games, yeah, he, he calls plays. I, I, what I want to start doing when I interview other NBA coaches is ask them if there's a golden you know, ratio for flow offense compared to calling sets in real time. Um, because yeah, as, even by the way, as a triangle coach, which is what I coach, like I never call plays, right? It's just all read and react. And so that, that I think is the way, uh, what Mike Tony wanted to tap into was that that's basketball. I think Phil Jackson agrees in the same way. And by the way, sports fans, if you want, if you doubt that, uh, coach, uh, Eber, Eberhardt was there, um, just watch my video when I interview uh, Mike D'Antoni from 2010 Summer League, and we'll we'll see him standing there in the background, I believe. But um, let's talk about uh, how they taught the read and the react. What were the methods in practice that they used specifically to allow the players to understand where they need to go based on what a defense does? Well, it, ironically, you know, you're talking about read and react. Uh, a vast majority of the drilling and practice for the system comes out of five on zero, which, uh, you know, just, just to get one of the keys. And I, I think uh, you see this now more and more teams. Uh, one of the early keys of the system is first of all, it's the first three steps. Once you know, you've secured the rebound or the other team has scored, especially your two and your three, which are, are basically interchangeable guys. They need to run those first three steps, be explosive, get down the court quickly, and they're running to the corners, mm -hmm. which most teams in transition, you know, guys are, are looking. Obviously, if, if a layup is there, you angle from the three-point line or foul line extended, obviously looking for a layup or dunk. But if that is not there, the two and the three-man need to run to the corners. And the reason for that, most people think of Mike D'Antoni's offense as this crazed pushing of the ball and a lot of fast break hoops. But in fact, the majority of the hoops get scored in, in the secondary transition. When mm -hmm. the defense is still getting back, but they're scrambling, they haven't picked guys up, you run your wing players, for lack of a better term, to the corners, and that opens up your trailing big guys to set drag screens and double drag screens 
which is the true kind of bedrock of uh, what the Phoenix team did, what the New York team did, and even the Lakers to a degree when Mike was there. Uh, that's that's where you're making hay because what you're doing is uh, by having those guys in the corner, you're making the defenders make a choice every single time down the floor. Are we covering that corner three, which is you know obviously been shown to be the second most effective shot you can shoot in the NBA other than a dunk or a layup at the rim? So you are we going to cover the corner three? Are we going to cover that big guy diving off of his drag screen? Mm-hmm. Are we going to cover Steve Nash coming off the screen? and potentially getting to the rim or pulling up for a deadly mid-ranger, one of the few guys that you want analytically shooting that pull-up. And then if you do cover the man drag screen, diving to the hoop, Mare, Stoudemire, whoever, which corner guy has to come in and tag off on him, which means the guy in the corner is now going to pop up just a little bit into what's called the back position, and he's going to be wide open again for a three. So those are the immediate decisions that you have to make out of that secondary transition. Now, again, I'm going off on a tangent. Your original question, how does that happen in practice? Basically, the sequence is from 5 on 0, a lot of repetitions 5 on 0, just to get the general movements down. And then what uh, Mike D'Antoni and Dan D'Antoni learned very early from their father, Louis D'Antoni, who's a legendary high school coach in West Virginia is part method. So they go from five on O to a lot of part method where you have three players, say on the strong side, running the screen, running the guy from the corner to the back, and then you're hitting the, the roller, the coach is hitting the guy at the three and hitting the guy coming off the pass. So they, a lot of part method was included in teaching uh, the, the way they wanted movement out of, out of the, the transition. And then, obviously, then it came into five-on-five, and uh, Mike likes to do a lot of full-court five-on-five where the defense gets a stop, they get to then push back Mm -hmm. and run the same sort of thing, fast-breaking, and the defense has to retreat and get back in transition. So you'll run off of uh, defensive stops, and uh, if you score, you'll start again in the half-court at the other end. So that's kind of the progression that they use to, to teach the seven seconds or less. And you notice that I actually said defense. I, I get in Twitter arguments all the time with people. Yes, Mike actually does care about defense. Oh, good, good. But does he does yeah. he work on it in practice is the question. Yeah, yes, he does. Okay. I'm throw, throwing that out there right now. So, well, but, uh, as far as the, the, it's a lot of transition stuff, obviously, because of what they're teaching offensively. So. Um, you know, that, that's kind of the, the bedrock. Get the guys to the corner. Big guy either run to the rim if you can be explosive up the middle or you're setting a drag screen or a double drag screen. Or right. if you have a stretch four type of player, he's delaying into what would be called the slot on the weak side or he would be lifted is another glossary word that some coaches use. He'd be in a lifted position. And then once you've explored the transition opportunities, then you get into some of the half court sets, which uh, in seven seconds or less are still quick hitting. It's, mm-hmm. it's not stuff where you're backing the ball out, looking to run uh, a long evolving floppy set or whatever. Most of the stuff in the half court is a natural progression where it's quick 
out of the out of the transition and you're still looking to attack quickly in the shot clock. You know, it's funny you bring up the lifted position of the, of the power forward or the center because uh, I'm looking at this because I'm coaching this team in the tournament and uh, coming up next week. And I'm going to basically steal a lot of the seven seconds or less. I love the pistol action that you get. Uh, and I'm looking at, you know, a guy out oh, of the and, corner. And please, please refer to it, Nick. 21. 21. I'm sorry. You know, I, I, by the way, <laughs> all the nomenclature, well, I, I, I'm very liberal with how I call different things. Like, I call it a weak fill when the guy in the corner comes up to the wing after the roll man clears out and his man bumps because it's weak side and he kind of fills the wing. But you you call yeah. it – what did you call it? The, the back position. The back position. So it's like, I, you know – and so I, I kind of make stuff up, and pistol really isn't like I am way too all encompassing when I say pistol because to me, what I'm looking for is the guy in the corner gets a dribble pitch and then gets an inside ball screen right right off of that action. So he's catching it off of the pitch and then he turns right into a dribble uh, to a ball screen. And I'm thinking yeah. that the other the weak side corner will can can then fill up to the wing. But then I was thinking, well, geez, where is that fifth player? Uh, if I run that and I thought, you know, this is not a sham. I wanted to talk to you in an interview about the coaching, but while you're here, you might as well give me some insight into where that fifth guy ends up trailing. Well, or that fifth guy for, for the folks out there, uh, in YouTube land and podcast land, what Nick's saying with the pistol or at 21 is how, uh, Mike D'Antoni referred to it. And so that's how I refer to it. Basically, it's a quick pass from your point guard moving up court to a man moving to the wing position. So it's called 21 in, in our books because it's the two and the one man. And then the point guard can then get a handoff from that wing player, or as Nick referred to, the wing player can keep the ball and the screen comes, which is called in the, the Phoenix uh, 20, 21 keep, that's called in, in kind of this glossary. So that, that's what a pistol action is basically, where you have a guy moving either from a drag screen position or the high post, he's moving to set a screen for that wing player. And that, that's one of the, the keys to the, the system as well is Mike was one of the first coaches because of the zone rules and because of the way coaches such as Tom Thibodeau overload players to the defensive side, the strong side of the ball. Mike D'Antoni's system, basically you try and shift the play to one side of the floor very distinctly. So then you can then reverse it or move it quickly to the other side and catch the defense before they can rotate or get that guy back over to where his man is theoretically. So, okay, so there's an explanation. Now, to your question about how can you use the, the big guy, um, you can obviously have him trailing as a lifted guy, which would put him in a position to obviously catch and shoot for three if he's a, a true stretch four. Um, or he can then initiate dribble handoff on the weak side, which was a, a play that New York ran over and over and over when they had David Lee as the trail man. Because he was so talented ball handling-wise and passing, David Lee basically became the fulcrum to initiate the offense on any reversal, which was referred to as delay. So, so he's, can, he's sprinting up the weak side lane line, basically. That's his position. Yeah, you, you, have, you have one guy obviously angling for a drag screen, and David Lee could then angle for a drag screen as well. Or he's coming down the, the slot on the weak side, mm -hmm. moves over, the ball's reversed to him, and then he then initiates dribble handoff action over on the weak side of the ball. Love it. Um, or a, a very effective way as well. If you've got one guy drag screening, what to do with that other big? And this may seem counterintuitive because you'll think, oh, it'll clog the lane up. 
But an, another great play that uh, or action that they run was where you did what's called shorting the big man. So basically, your other big guy starts off on the strong side of the ball low in a short corner area, and you then, as the, the ball handler comes off the screen, he moves in the exact same direction as the ball handler up the lane. Now, like you're going, why are you bringing that guy right to where the action is? But what you're, what you're doing is as that big guy moves to the strong and the ball side, it sets up a quick pass to him and a dump to the roller. But more importantly, his defensive man, as he moves to the strong side, then has to think, okay, do I stick with this big rolling up towards the ball, which seems strange, or do I have to stay and tag off on the other big rolling hard to the hoop? So as that guy shorts the pick and roll, you can hit him for a quick pass, which he can then turn and shoot uh, you know, a little anything from a mid-block to high post jumper. He can hit the roll man coming down the middle of the lane with a quick shovel pass, as, as you call it. Or what normally opens up, again, you have that point guard who started the whole action down in the corner. What's his man doing defensively? If he's going to move in to tag off on the roller, your short guy catches the ball and then has the guard in a position again to shoot the three. Mm -hmm. So even though it seems counterintuitive for that big guy to move into where the action is happening, it opens up all sorts of uh, potential, especially for three on the, uh, the pass back out to the 45. So those are a couple of things you can do out of 21 or pistol uh, where you have your big guy, you know, set him in the slot, mm -hmm. uh, have him initiate weak side dribble handoff action, or run him from the short corner low block area uh, to the other side in the same direction as the ball handler. So those are all good actions you can run with your other big. Absolutely, you know, because the other part I'm going to do is is uh, sort of the high post split action where you enter the ball to the, to the elbow. And then the point guard will go screen in the corner for the corner man, and then you can get a lot of dribble pitch action out of that, or uh, or, or yeah. even um, uh, backdoor cutting. Uh, I, I, all that stuff is interesting because you know you see it basically uh, the, the Warriors have sort of taken a lot of these actions um, and incorporated them in their own um, in a way that we've seen even you know the, the, the funny thing about like for instance the Princeton offense when you talk to Pete Carrillo he'll just tell you that he watched the Celtics in the 60s and basically took oh I like that and I like that action I like that what they do and he just kind of organized it a little bit more right and so it seems like you know that's almost what the Warriors did too this year they were doing Boston Celtics splits off a low post for you know, but instead of going, instead of Sam, um, oh my God, Sam, Sam uh, Jones, Sam Jones coming around for that bank shot from fifteen, it's Steph Curry backing up for a three, and Clay Thompson curling for the three, you know, and it was much more space. Uh, I love that. I can't get over when I see like old school, you know, rooting in the fundamentals of the game when it was invented, action being done by players who actually are all world skill and who can, you know, I think it just shows you that when you strip it down to the basics. Even those guys back in the 20s and 30s knew what they were talking about. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting, and it constantly a progression basketball you know, based on the rules primarily in terms of how things have changed. Uh, but you, you talk about, I know you love the horns, and mm -hmm. in, in the D'Antoni <clears throat> system, it's called elbows. You know, they run stuff, it's elbow this, elbow that, and uh, what you're talking about, the entry to the elbow, the down screen into the corner, 
obviously an action that uh, earlier in the 2000s we saw the Sacramento Kings with their unbelievable passing big guys run over and over and over. And uh, Mike used that a lot in Phoenix with uh, elbow players uh, again. And like you said, Golden State uses it a lot and they've just added new wrinkles, evolutionary, just mm -hmm. like everything else. And uh, for Mike, it was called elbow sack, obviously after Sacramento, where you down screen and ideally, obviously it was Steve Nash setting the down screen. And then the corner player uh, would come off, hopefully in a curl, heading towards the hoop. And then Steve, after setting the screen, would come back off the dribble handoff, which Golden State used a little bit of that same stuff with Steph Curry. Uh, or they would have Steph in the corner, and rather than have a down screen for him, he would set the back screen, which normally guaranteed coming off a back screen, he would be open again mm -hmm. for a dribble handoff or some sort of pass coming when he was working from the weak side. So obviously having Elvin Gentry uh, on Steve Kerr's staff, Steve was familiar with things, obviously as general manager in Phoenix, but truly having Alvin there uh, who ran the same system as head coach in Phoenix as an associate head coach in Golden State this year was, uh, was great. And the Warriors blended that kind of seven seconds or less with a lot of the San Antonio uh, actions, you know, loop, whatever. And those kind of blended into a, a, a hybrid uh, fast-paced offense. Still obviously not playing. Um, they, they weren't the fastest pace in the league, if I'm not mistaken. I think they, they were maybe second. But uh, mm -hmm. it, it all blended together to make for some beautiful offense. Absolutely. And it was young players who, you know, maybe otherwise wouldn't have uh, known how to play because usually the lament these days is, oh, these young guys are coming in the league. They don't know how to play. They don't know the fundamentals. Uh, although, interestingly enough, you look at a guy like Harrison Barnes who went to Carolina. You look at a guy like Steph Curry who played for a great coach at Davidson. Uh, Clay Thompson went to uh, where Washington? Washington State. Uh, Washington State. Who was the coach at Washington State? Uh, when he was at I'm not sure whether it was still one of the Ryans or I'd have to look oh, that okay, up. Yeah. But, and he went for multiple years. He, right. He was, he played for two, at least two years, right. In college. Yes. So you're came talking out, about, as a, as a came out, I got after a junior. Yeah. So you're talking about guys who actually, you know, developed in college. It's a really good argument for kids to stay in college. I'd almost think because they were able to pick it up so easily in a short amount of time. Normally if a new coach comes in, puts a new system, especially one like that, you would imagine it would take a, a while. Uh, and it didn't. So, uh, I mean, it's beautiful. And by the way, that, that screen, it, it, it does. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't. I, I would argue just because, um, you know, you're, you're playing a type of offense that players want to play naturally in terms of the, the pace and where the shots are coming from and mm -hmm. things like that. Obviously, uh, and I know I talked to Steve Kerr about this, that the beginning of their practices was constantly uh, doing some of Tex Winter's old footwork and dribble handoff drills. So they, they started their practice every day like that in Golden State. So, you know, stressing those sort of things, I think, probably segued perfectly into what they were doing uh, offensively, you know, coming off down screens, how to set your feet, how to come off the shoulder, how to get low, how to accept the handoff would have all been based on the very simple fundamental Tex Winter type stuff that Golden State did at the beginning of practice.
Absolutely. And the dribble handoff to me has always been preferable than a pick and roll almost because it's a, it basically is a pick and roll at a higher speed when you get, you can get more separation in my mind. Uh, and if you're going to do a pick and roll, my, my philosophy has always been I want some movement side to side first. And I think that's what the Spurs had sort of showed everybody. Uh, another difference be, between what everybody was doing, which was holding a fist up and then having a guy come and then spread them, which I think D'Antoni did as well. I mean, he had that basic set as well in his, in his playbook right very much so and like i said he, he aimed always to stretch the floor tilt the defense to one side and then to be able to attack on the other side for when rotations were forced and, but one of the things i think you just pointed out there that that's very important to how things are done is it's not just one pick and roll it's not flatten the floor and set one pick and roll it's multiple pick and rolls even on the same with the same ball handler mm -hmm. it's Flipping, flipping the screen. It's setting a flat screen up behind, something Tim Duncan does very, very well. And one of the other things, uh, you know, it's when the ball's reversed, it's setting screens again. So it, it's multiple screening actions to force the defense, again, to account for the role man or make a decision, am I going with the ball handler? Am I blitzing with two guys that's going to open up four on three back on the other side? So multiple screens are forcing the defense to make that decision over and over and over, as opposed to how are we going to play that one high screen they're going to run in a, in a more of a matchup-oriented or isolation type of pick-and-roll uh, offense. So that's one thing. And the other thing with screens, and th this is something that uh, Mike teaches and Mike's system looks for, is your initial ball screen, you want to set what's called a, a bottom side screen so and I actually wrote about this last year on SB Nation NBA about the different types of screens now that you teams set in the NBA and a bottom side screen what what you're trying to do you're, you're not getting perpendicular and square to uh, the defender so you're not trying to stop him right in the middle of the screen in the chest and thwart him at all what you want to force the defender on this on the ball handler to do is go over top of the screen. So you angle the screen just that little bit to the bottom side towards his butt to force him every time to go over the screen, which means the screener's defender now has to slide out on the ball handler and make a decision. Are we going to switch? Is that guy going to fight over the top and are we going to blitz? So you're, you're forcing the on-ball defender always to go over the screen, which forces the screeners guy to make a decision mm -hmm. opens up the little uh, slot pass on the bounce it opens up uh, the corner man moving to the back so everything is predicated on forcing that guy over the top of the screen which is a very important part of, uh, of what you're trying to accomplish in uh, in mike's offense you know, in a, in a free-flow offense where players are interchangeable positionally, you know, I, I think that's the case for, for Mike's offense most of the time, except for maybe the center. Um, it, it might be hard sometimes to get the right alignment where you have this person screening for this player. Now, Steve Nash, obviously, in that offense was going to get the majority of the ball screens. We were charting, though, the, the screening in the finals, and we were looking at the pairs. Who was the ball handler? Who was the screener? And then who was defending those? And... While the the Warriors seemed to do, I mean, it was mostly Draymond Green screening for for Steph Curry. But on the other end with Cleveland, there were moments where we were seeing this was a fantastic matchup for them, and yet they wouldn't 
screen with that guy for this ball handler often enough or often at all to the point where I'm wondering if they're charting that or are even aware of that. Uh, what it was was Mike D'Antoni aware of that specific matchup and how they would want to, do, especially I guess in the playoffs, how they would want this person to screen for this person with the defense. Basically, and that that's normally, as you said, it's dependent on the defender more than almost the screening pair. It's who do you want to toss in? One of the things, though, I thought Cleveland tried to do effectively screen screening wise in the finals was they uh, because LeBron basically functions as your point guard. They were setting a lot of what would be guard-on-guard screens, a small, whether it's Delavadova or whoever, screen for LeBron to try and force that mismatch with LeBron. And it, it made me think a lot of back when San Antonio was obviously the Phoenix Suns' nemesis, and they would stick Bruce Bowen onto Steve Nash. And, uh, you know, Phoenix ended up getting around that. Uh, Mike made the decision to have the other guard screen for Steve, and because it was a same size switch, San Antonio would switch it, and that's how you would get away from that defensive matchup of having Bruce Bowen on Nash. So, you know, Cleveland tried to do that, and yes, they would they would chart that, and that's uh, one thing. NBA teams chart everything, right? And more analytically driven teams obviously have their own staff. Like the the assistant coaches, whether it's the front row guys or the second row guys, are are all charting away all game long. Mm-hmm. And then you have your video guy there charting as well for obviously the edits at halftime and post game and things like that. And then for teams with large analytic crews, they're charting away as well. So I'm pretty sure they would have a good idea of uh, what screening pairs worked best, what uh, combinations of three, if you were setting a screen and then a second screen was mm-hmm. coming. I'm pretty sure they would have a, a, a pretty good handle on all of that. Now, Obviously, with with Cleveland, their personnel needs and their injuries and how they had to play in terms of grinding the clock to kill pace to keep Golden State from getting into their rhythm had a lot to do with uh, what they were doing. And it may have looked disorganized, but I'm more than willing to give uh, Coach Blatt and his staff the benefit of the doubt uh, in terms of they just knew that that's what they had to do in terms of making it as ugly as possible and uh, maybe not using some of the pairings that you're referring to just because uh, they didn't want anything quick-hitting. They didn't want anything to attack fast. Right. That, would, that would be my take on it. I have no idea whether, uh, whether that's what happened or not. And I, uh, Hopefully, maybe I'll, I'll get a chance to ask Jim Boylan, who's a, an assistant coach with Cleveland and formerly worked here in Vancouver as one of the original Vancouver Grizzlies assistants. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I might get a chance to talk to him this summer about that. It would be a fascinating question to ask. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Knowing what Coach David Blatt's system looks like and what he prefers to run, um, you know, the idea that they would resort to how they end up playing with so much isolation, because I know you want to slow the ball down and hold it, um, but I can't really believe that he was all on board with what they ended up doing. And the other thing, I don't know if you saw, we broke down the, all the ATOs, all the after-time-out plays, and we, we compared. And, you know, what was funny was that the Warriors were actually, um, comparatively for the playoff teams, very uh, average overall for the whole playoffs as far as their out-of-time-out plays uh, efficiency. But in the finals, they would have been the third-best team in, you know, in the regular season for their efficiency. <clears throat> Meanwhile... The Warrior, uh, the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers, ended up would have been twenty eighth 
in the league in out of timeout efficiency, which is the one opportunity coming out of a timeout where you could actually run a set and get a good shot, which they did do every so often. But almost half of them were, were awful LeBron isos that resulted in terrible shots they didn't score. And my take on that was, imagine if they were simply average efficiency on those out-of-timeout plays by running a little bit something more. That's game seven, wouldn't you say? It, it could have been, but I'll, I'll go back to, I, I think that was by design. They, they didn't want to do anything quick hitting. That's, that's all I can take away from that. Now, obviously, you can still be efficient uh, with an ATO uh, later into a clock, but it's difficult, right? When you're, you're running an ATO, it's normally something that uh, you're, you're hitting kind of within four to six seconds because it, it's very structured in terms of down screen here, curl here, catch, kick, whatever. It's something that's happening very quickly within the clock. And uh, coming out of a timeout, they have 14 seconds on the shot clock normally, unless it's uh, you know a desperation timeout where they really need to put something together. But uh, it, it's that same thing. I, I think that's probably why the, the inefficiency was so poor. Is they weren't running the normal type of ATOs they would have during the season in terms of getting a lick relatively quickly. They, they were just looking to, to pound that ball into dust the best they could. Well, what that, we, I, I think yeah. you know, some of that's on David Blatt, but some of it's on LeBron. As we've seen, you know, it's obviously somewhat of a partnership in terms of how that team runs uh, runs their uh, offense and their sets and things like that. So, you know, it, you, you can put the blame on both of them, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, but then when, when you say that, I'm like, great, if there's 14 seconds on the clock, then don't start, the, you know, bring the ball, pound it on the top for, you know, those, those five still, seconds. Still and still run we're... something a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, like, only because when you saw what did work, it was like it, it, it would be a no-brainer, and I'm sure. Here, I, mean, I think what we're getting down to. I don't want to. I don't want to be too anti-LeBron, but I, I just. I honestly feel like uh, there was very there, Coach Blatt's influence on what they were doing was 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 less than maybe what we think. So, I mean, you know, compared to what we heard, even like by Mark Stein's article, which whether or not you agree with how he wrote it and presented it, whether if those things are facts that he saw, and we've seen it sort of in the earlier in the playoffs too. Uh, you know, I, and, and by the way, we've seen LeBron run over his coaches. You know, Mike Brown wasn't calling timeouts. He wasn't subbing guys, apparently. He, LeBron was doing all of that in the first run in Cleveland. So I, I start to wonder, now, did it work? Like, pretty well. They got to game six, and they were competitive in those games. But I, I would always contend that there's no way a player or coach would ever be able to be successful. There's too many things, too, too many variables. You just don't have, the, you don't have the vision. You have to be able to skip back and see. Uh, the game, uh, you know, from well, and, and the, the game yeah. has changed so dramatically over the years that uh, you know I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I, Lenny Wilkins playing coach days are, uh, are are long gone, just because whether it's the sophistication of the advanced scouting, the sophistication of the video and the data that's available, it's uh, it's too much. Like take away uh, the stuff that happens during the game that you need to have a big picture idea and maybe be detached from what's actually happening on the floor. It, it, uh, although yeah. it'll be interesting to see with Cleveland how with their full roster, when they're back, now that uh, David Blatt has uh, a little more time to impose his will uh, as to what they want to do, uh, how Cleveland will come out next year with, uh, with a proper full roster 
and uh, a little more benefit of uh, getting on the same page philosophically, what they'll look like uh, offensively, especially. Yeah, they're, they're, and there's no question. Like you know, because of that, I, I, my take on it was because they were so shorthanded. It was all the more reason to run something that would increase the gravity to LeBron that he can then do it, as opposed to just pounding it, pounding it at the, at the high post and letting him go. I mean, if he shot one more left-footed runner going to his going to his left with the right hand that would bank and brick off the backboard, I was going to go crazy. I was like he kept shooting that same <laughs> shot. And we and I, I did a montage in that breakdown too, where I, it must have been twelve of those that he did, and that wasn't all of them. So um, you know, did, did you title the montage "LeBron Building a House"? Yeah, <laughs> I should have. I mean, it was it was it could have been its own little video, and I, I even tweeted that. I said, you know, I now know what LeBron needs to do this offseason, and he needs to work on his finishing moves going to his left because he loves going to his left because he pulls up well, and all righties do, right? And he does it a lot. But man, when he kept going the extra step to try and get closer, it was a train wreck. And you know the dirty little secret about LeBron is, other than that one year he shot like forty percent from three, his outside shooting really is is subpar. And like I've been looking at the when you look at the little hot spots around the the, the, the court, he really hasn't been a great outside shooter for, for a, over a year, uh, maybe two. And so. Uh, you know, I, 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 you can call it trolling, but I just like to say, okay, listen, he is the greatest player we've had, and he, he'll be top five all time. But sometimes there needs to be a little bit of reality here where, okay, you know, these are things that you might be overlooking that, you know, even the best players uh, don't do well. Um, you know, what I, whatever you want to call it, hating or trolling, I, I just, you know, when well, I see that I, stuff, I, I like to point it out. I, I will suggest, because I know this is a favorite of yours, that LeBron work on his Mike Connolly in lane floater oh. with the offhand. Wow. You know what? If there's anybody that could do it, it would be him. Although, let me ask you this because um, I was watching and, a workout. The, sorry, the reason I say that, Nick, the reason I say that is I actually had an opportunity to work on that with Mike Connolly. So oh, okay, good. Let's I, talk and about I know that. You're always, you're always going off on the right-hand floater, and I, I've tried to convince you before that Mike is actually right-handed. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's argue that, about that this. That is let's, not an offhand floater for let, him. <laughs> let's make this an argument then. This would be a compelling uh, uh, podcast material. So I had a player who's just like Mike Conley at my level, lefty, you know, quick, short, um, and a pretty good shooter, but it would shoot this right-handed floater, and it would literally like almost break the backboard every time. And I, I literally I, – I never want to be the guy to say, hey, you can't shoot that shot, but I had to say, you're killing us. We can't have that in the games. And um, – I have to imagine, you know, lefties must, you know, take it as a badge of honor that they can shoot it righty as well with the offhand. Now, okay, here, let me talk about this whole ambidextrous thing, okay? Because clearly, and also David Lee is the same way. When David Lee shoots most of his shots righty, it is clearly a lesser skilled shot for him, the way he releases it and the way it comes off. I, I will do the, I will break it down and I'm sure I'll see the percentages are lower. I know that maybe Drew Hanlon has it already, but. Here is what I'm going to argue vehemently, is that if you shoot a free throw with your left hand, then you are a lefty. I don't care what you say, any, anything else. You shoot your jump shots as a left hand, you are a lefty. So how are you going to convince me that he's a righty? Mike Connolly literally, other than shoot the basketball from the outside, does everything right hand. And I, I don't know why. I never asked him. Uh, my time spent with the Grizzlies, I was lucky enough to be summer league training camp and embedded with them uh, two seasons ago. 
and Mike literally does everything right-handed. What does that mean, like everything, like brushes teeth right-handed, or what are we talking about? Everything. Brushes teeth, uses fork, uh, you know, you name something right-handed, and Mike basically does it right-handed, other than shoot a basketball. Okay. Well, I'm still, I mean, okay, fine. But it doesn't mean that he's... But I I will argue, too, I know you'll, you'll chart it and stuff, but I think that's become an unbelievably effective tool for Mike driving in the key. Uh, and uh, percentage-wise, I haven't charted it, but I, I think his percentage-wise is pretty strong in terms of, uh, you know, if you looked at overall floaters. And I, I don't know, I'm pretty sure someone sent that to you one time in a tweet. But Mike, yeah. Mike has become unbelievably effective. And LeBron, uh, going back to the reason I brought it up, LeBron going left, as you said, normally likes to pull up like many, many right-handers. And when he got to the rim uh, left-handed, he struggled, I think mainly because of fatigue and his explosiveness wasn't quite there like earlier in his career or even maybe earlier in the season. That that may have been residual injury or whatever. But uh, I, I think a guy like LeBron where defenses, big guys zone up and he can't always get to the rim, uh, you know, they're encouraging to shoot the, the mid-range jumper. Well, if he takes it that one or two dribbles further, I, I think he could have a very effective little floater game um, that he will need as his explosiveness kind of wanes as he gets older in his body. You know, his body now, how many extra seasons has he played compared to most players just mm-hmm. in the playoffs? Uh, a shot like that, even at 6'8", I think could be, could be an effective weapon for him to add as, uh, as he goes forward. It's interesting because, you know, the floater isn't new. They've been shooting that shot since the 30s, right? Like that little one-footed, you know, almost the same shot. And, in fact, I got on the court with a guy who played at NYU in 1940-something, and that, he showed us that. I said, that's exactly what we see. All those guys, like even Nash will still used to still do it, right, off of one foot and shoot like a shot. A shot. So I shouldn't be so, so that much, diapo, uh, diapo, bio, whatever the word is, diametrically opposed Diametrically to opposed. Yes. Uh, but when I see... I would say half of the shots I see that are floaters like that could easily just be pull-ups, balanced, nice, easy, easy jump shots in the lane that are relatively uncontested. Mike Conley does shoot very well from the floater. I did remember, on a, I mean, a horribly small, you know, sample size. I did suss out the right-handed ones, and it was, it was, it wasn't, you know, great. But it was a very small sample size, so it's like you take one or the other. And certainly, he had a couple big misses with the righties. I'm remembering the last couple of years that were like big at the end of games, and he shot that right-handed one. I don't know. Uh, I'll have to go back, but I remember a couple were like, oh, you know, uh, they were key moments where. You know, is there any other way to get a shot off because he's going to his right? Like, maybe not, but um, I, I don't know. I, I just see enough of those that just make me want to cringe, even though he does make them. It's, you know, by the way, like, you know, Joe Kim Noah shoots horrible. Like, that form is frightening. And I remember I had to argue with the Chicago Bulls fans for years that, oh, he can make that shot. He's really good at making it. And uh, that's that. no one argues that anymore <laughs> for him. But with Mike Conley, I don't know. I, I know all point guards need to have this shot, and maybe even LeBron. I would just say LeBron is going to continue working on his post game as he gets older. Um, I was watching a workout, an NBA workout last week, and I was watching a guy who can jump out of the gym, like hit his head on the top of the backboard. And then he was working on floaters, and it was a struggle for him. And I'm starting to think that, like, why would you ever teach anyone like that a floater? Because if the guy is 6'4", or 6'5", they can jump that high, then he simply needs to pull up for the jump shot. Or attack the, attack the rim that much harder. 
Right. A, a guy, a guy, if he has the, the kind of hops you're talking about at six four, six five, um, you know, keep sending him, keep sending him to the front of the rim every single time. Right, because there's so much vector movement going like toward the baseline, and if you're trying to hit it off the off the off the glass. I mean, geez, that's just a that's a tough shot, uh, you know. And is it the goal just to get it off, or is the goal to make it? No, and and I think uh, a lot of that, you know, kids start developing that now because they see NBA players shooting it, and I think a lot of uh, personal skill trainers add that in just because they think everyone needs this shot. Now, as you said, you know, not necessarily at at this point of that player's career that you saw working out. Maybe he doesn't need that shot. You know, I, I don't know who it was, but, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of a lot of guys add different facets of a workout in in terms of what the skills they want guys working on just because everyone's doing it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe, maybe that floater isn't something that everyone needs. Right. Like, well, I see a lot of skills trainers, um, not the guy I was with last week, but a lot of guys who will do these random drills to, like, get them shots and, it has nothing to do with what they actually do in their offense. Like if I were, if I see one more drill, uh, and I, I've seen this all the time with this one area, one group of people where they start at the low block and they cut up to the elbow and then break out to the wing and they throw them the ball and they square up and then they shoot a jump shot. Like there is no offense in the NBA that does that action anymore, right? And yet I see them do that. Um, you know that that you know no one runs box or whatever that would be, right? Where you're breaking out from the elbow and catching it. So um, I, I'm I'm a real big proponent of yeah, okay. If you're going to work on that shot, give them the action that they're doing beforehand as well. Have them start on the other end and sprint down as if they're coming in from defense. So that's that's my really big thing these days as well because I feel like uh, there's too much of a disconnect. Uh, for muscle memory, if you're not kind of doing that whole game part of the thing that happens before that shot happens, and I, I'm in agreement, uh, I'm in agreement with that. I know the the players I've had an opportunity to work out, uh, it mainly, especially offensively, it revolves around what their role is going to be offensively. And it's funny, uh, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to work out Meta World Peace when he was on the Lakers. He he spent a couple of months up here in Vancouver, and, and uh, we did workouts together. And uh, right after, I think it was like the first or second workout, that's when Mike Brown got hired as the, the Lakers coach. So we started working on uh, little Princeton actions mm-hmm. that I knew that they'd be running and that might involve Meta in, in the offense. And so we worked on footwork out of that or um, – you know, a, a lot of a lot more stuff where he had to handle the ball, and then a lot of three-point shooting because uh, out of what the Lakers were running, regardless, you know, they still had Kobe and they still had Powell, so uh, Meta was going to end up with a lot of corner threes where the defense basically was encouraging him to shoot those. So that's the type of stuff we worked on, but it was all based on. Uh, what his role was going to be in the Lakers offense. It, it wasn't skill development in the true sense that we're going to add this, we're going to add this, make you the most all-around player we can. We're going to concentrate on what your role is within the team and work on those particular skills and, and enhance what you already do very well and try and enhance on that, make it even better. 
uh, in terms of uh, how you fit into the Lakers hierarchy offensively. So I, I really agree. And even in terms of the, the amount of time we spent working out, you know, I, I would base it off a 40, 48 minute game in terms of how we were how we were doing things intensity wise and things like that. So I, I'm in full agreement with you about something like uh, game situations as opposed to random drills that might work work on various different skills. Yeah, I, I agree, and it's and hopefully the people, more people, will start doing that. Let's talk about skill development for a minute because I had a chance to hang out with Pete Newell a little bit. I interviewed him, and we got to talk, you know, to some degree. But I can't tell you how jealous I am that you got to spend a little time at his big man camp and watch him in action. Is it? And so, tell us a little bit about that and what that was like. Uh, it was a, a great experience, and just a little backstory. It's funny, as I mentioned, my brother, pretty successful high school college coach here. For his uh, 40th birthday, I had arranged for him to attend uh, a training camp of an NBA team uh, through people I knew. And he, he was unable to do that. So what we ended up doing is later that summer, uh, I got us into the Pete Newell Big Man Camp in Las Vegas. So that was my birthday gift uh, to my brother Paul, was to take, take him to Vegas and where we would be part of the Pete Newell Big Man Camp. And that was done through uh, Mike Dunlap, who's now the coach at Loyola Marymount University in uh, Los Angeles, uh, formerly at Metro State Division II in Denver, Denver Nuggets assistant, St. John's assistant, and then Charlotte Bobcats uh, at that time, head coach. And so he, he helpfully uh, was great and arranged it. And he'd been a disciple of Pete Newell since he started coaching way back uh, when with George Ravlin. So that, there's kind of the backstory. So we, we went to Vegas and they held the Pete Newell camp at uh, the practice gym in the basement at the Thomas and Mack Center where NBA Summer League was held, the Cox Pavilion, Thomas and Mack. And actually, I guess it's under the Cox Pavilion is the practice courts. So we had an opportunity every single day to, uh, you know, they had two sessions a day. Um, they had your college players uh, in primarily in one session, and then uh, NBA players in another session, more to do with NCAA rules. But, and uh, so we got to go every single day and learn various footwork drills that Pete Newell used, uh, how he emphasized the inside pivot, um, reverse pivot into an inside pivot, always going towards the middle, all those little sort of things that they had the big guys doing popping out to the perimeter, uh, catching on the wing to learn the footwork before you even made any gesture to go into the low block mm -hmm. and work on those types of drills. And, uh, you know, you can argue that those type of skills have, are diminished in the NBA today, obviously with the style of play, a back-to-the-basket player in terms of points per possession isn't going to generate as much out of the, out of the low post. So... But the footwork that you learn in the post is just as crucial all over the court to whatever you're doing. So it, it was a, a great opportunity to, to watch how they worked with players. That was actually Andrew Bynum's uh, rookie summer. So straight out of high school, uh, he was at the, the Newell Big Man Camp. And more, more importantly, uh, I think, watching how, uh, what they taught the players in the footwork was the opportunity for my brother and I to speak with the coaches and personnel 
that they had at the camp. Obviously, Pete Newell was there every single day. He was at that point, I guess he was right around 90, I think, and had just come off surgery and yet was there every single day mm-hmm. at the camp, observing, correcting, helping helping with the coaches. It, it was an amazing experience. And uh, the, the biggest thing I got out of it and, and something I try and teach today is the ability to use both feet as your pivot foot. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that's, sounds unbelievably simple and straightforward, but that's one of the things that I really took away in terms of skill development and teaching players is that, uh, you know, I, I know some people believe in a dedicated pivot foot, but I, from that experience and what I try and teach guys today is the ability to use both, to be able to attack off of both feet, to be able to use simple, you know, jab and shoot, jab and go, jab, go, step back, all of those type of drills. That's what they run at the Pete Newell camp. And they all have little names like the, the, the one step back is referred to as the Kiki move. Mm-hmm. from Kiki Vandewey, legendary Denver Nugget, and other teams now an executive with uh, the NBA League office. So the step back is called the Kiki. Right. The spin move, when your your big man catches in the low post and with the quick baseline spin, the quasi-hook, as it were, that's the shack. And oh. so they have like little, little names based on former players that Pete Newell has worked with, uh, and they incorporate that into the mnemonic device to remember the move and but it's all based out of the ability to use both feet as your pivot foot and to use both feet to attack whether it's right foot or left foot in terms of putting the ball on the floor so sure. uh, great great experience and uh, you know given that uh, you know coach Newell has passed um, and to have the opportunity to see him in action and to, to speak with him and have question and answer sessions with him uh, in the evening after camp, unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was so gracious at any time you'd ever see him. Uh, and, and, and I would call him on the phone and we would talk, you know, and he would, I mean, it was crazy. He would answer. And I remember when, um, when, um, the, when Syracuse won the national championship with Mello, uh, playing two, three zone exclusively, I was, I was morose because, you know, <laughs> no, no team should be able to be that successful doing that, you know. And meanwhile, I think Kansas missed like, you know, 12 or 13 wide open free throw line jumpers because they ran good offense against it. Um, and, uh, and we, I remember we talked about that for a long time. And he just, you know, answered the phone. We, we, we talked. Um, you know, the thing that, is, you know, all my players will, will probably roll their eyes when they hear this because if they're listening, because, you know, we spent every, the beginning of every uh, season was always on pivots and turns. We wouldn't even get the ball out for the first, you know, several minutes of practice. And we're just working on that and warming up. And um, my problem I have now with that is, is that people have, we were talking about mnemonics and, and vocabulary. Um, the pivot is not, the people use the wrong term for pivot in my mind now. Back in the day, a turn was when you moved forward, and a pivot was when you went backwards. And that's how I teach it, and it's really simple. So when we go, okay, left foot turn, dribble, right foot pivot, they can, okay, and then the better we get at it, the faster they can now do it, which I'm assuming what, I'm sure Pete Newell did the same kind of thing. But we talk about inside pivot or outside pivot, whatever, and it's like, it's, I think it's so much more confusing for players now because they don't use the word turn, you know, then that way. Did, did Pete Newell break it down in that way or not? 
Uh, not not so much. It was referred to uh, referred to as an inside pivot was, you know, when you caught facing the ball, your inside or your baseline foot, that that was your pivot. So, for instance, if I'm looking straight at the basket on the left side of the floor, mm-hmm. um, if I caught the ball moving towards the middle, my left foot would become my pivot foot because my left foot was my base baseline. Right obviously the opposite on the other side so, okay and and I, I i would drive you crazy because i refer to as opposed to a pivot and a turn i refer to them both as a pivot but it's a front pivot or a reverse pivot right exactly a front pivot you know and, and i don't know so because i do it for seven-year-olds and they get it really quick and they love it because they're like why are we doing this and i said okay watch i'm going to catch the ball and i do that what was that they're like oh that's a left foot pivot and I, okay, now I catch the ball here, and I what, what's that? Oh, that's you just did a right foot turn. I'm like, yes, that is what we need to learn and how to do it quick. You know, be quick, don't hurry. Um, and I, I'm trying to spread that gospel now because there's a lot of these things. Even at the younger grades, when they're all shooting at 10 foot rims, when they're seven years old, like that needs to change. You know, and it should be whatever age they are is the height the rim is. And, age, appro- age appropriate, ball size. Yeah, age absolutely. So, you know, maybe you'll help me in this crusade I have because my kid's playing in a six, seven, seven, eight-year-old league. They're playing on the full court, five-on-five, um, with 10-foot rims, and they're allowed to press the last two minutes. And I got to tell you, it looks like a war zone at the end of the game. There's, like, the kids all over the floor, jump ball after jump ball. It's just a mess. You don't, you can't, you shouldn't be pressing at that level. Um, and so, um, anyway, that's my little diatribe against that. Um, but listen, this was a fantastic conversation. I think we got into a lot of really cool stuff, and we definitely should do some more of this because I'm interested to hear even more about all sorts of things with D'Antoni and Mello and how that stuff went out. So, you know, I promise you'll come back on the show. Oh, definitely. And, uh, you know, obviously Mike's been an unbelievable mentor for me, and uh, I've learned a great deal about especially offensive basketball from Mike. And uh, I'd love to have the opportunity, you know, I'd spent some time with the Grizzlies when Lionel Hollins was there, uh, you know, summer league training camp. And as you mentioned, Im- embedded time during the season. And, uh, you know, I-, I learned a great deal of defense from the grit and grind Grizzlies as well. So it- it's been a-, a really interesting experience for me in terms of my NBA experience. And then even some of the other players I've had an opportunity to work with. I- I'd love to-, to talk about that as well. Nick. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun, and this is my first Skype adventure too. So I'm 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 breaking down barriers left, right, and center for myself coming on with you today. Hey, I'm glad I could be a part of that for for sure. Well, we'll have you on, and we'll get down to the bottom of some more fundamentals as soon as we can. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel; we're a conversation. You win, you win, Coach. I'm in, Coach. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing, like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. 
Safeway makes it easy to save at the pump with your club card because you can use up to 20 cents per gallon in Safeway gas rewards at participating Chevron and Texaco stations. Get more mileage out of your grocery budget, up to 20 cents per gallon. When you shop more at Safeway, you save more at Chevron and Texaco. Maximum reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Cannot be combined with any other Safeway gas reward offer. Restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at Safeway.com or in store.